Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Hilman Sorry on the line, who is co-CEO of Closed Loop, author of Triangle Selling, Sales Enablement, Sales Development, and a couple of books on sales playbooks. Hilman, welcome, and thank you very much for being my guest today. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Always a pleasure. Excellent. Could you give the listeners one minute history of how we got to know one another and your journey so far? Sure. As I recall it, you and I met nearly 10 years ago in Baltimore at a Sandler conference when I was a very, I was a brand new Sandler trainer. And uh, I don't know how much detail you want, but I remember you and I had a a very late night in conversation around professional development, which uh, really lit my eyes up and got me really interested in the space of uh, sales training as it relates to developing individuals as well as growing organizations. From there, I went on, I I learned a lot from my Sandler experience and uh, went on to work with a number of startups here in the Bay Area. And I think where we found our niche as closed loop is really in developing frameworks that underlie methodologies like Sandler to help organizations to really make those types of things stick, whether it's training, whether it's process, whether it's strategy, having that underlying framework and foundation that uh, creates some cohesiveness throughout the organization to allow these things to stick and to accelerate revenue. Excellent. I seem to remember that was quite a martini-fueled night. If I it was a martini, a very dry martini-fueled <laughs> night <laughs> of professional development. Hey, that's not a bad thing to work into any professional development consultation. I'm I agree. I, I, I think most businesses lubricate as well. By the That's right. It gets um, real pretty fast. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, well, let, let's just cut straight to the chase. I know that you tend to focus on scale-up businesses, and so do I. Talk me through the journey that businesses go through, moving from startup to seed funding to Series A and onwards, and the kind of uh, obstacles that they face along the way, because I suspect that will be a minefield. Yeah. Well, you know, the challenge, and I'm out here in Silicon Valley, so we're working with a lot of startup tech organizations. So that's really our wheelhouse. A lot of these organizations, you know, it might start with a couple technical co-founders who in college even conceive of a fantastic idea or just through the ether figure out, hey, here's a way that I could disrupt this industry based upon my comprehension of technology. And so they go and they whittle away and they create an MVP. And then they get someone who sees that and says, hey, I could make money on the heels of these individuals. Let's give them some cash. And they go into this product development process where they swiftly iterate. They work in sprints. And the whole idea is how quickly and how lean and agilely can we come to market with a product that uh, is viable and that begins to get some traction. Then they hit the obstacle. The first obstacle is, hey, We've had either friends and family or maybe a a company that is part of a VC portfolio, or somehow we have found a few organizations or individuals to say, this is something that's interesting to me. Now, how do you go about doing this at scale? So again, you've got these founders who have a lot of technical competence, but may not have the go-to-market expertise. So that's the first stumbling block is how do you find that early adopting group of people, not just you know five to 10, but really a significant number, which begins to show traction around your idea. Now, once you've done that, it's probably time to bring on a sales team or to bring on at least a head of sales who's a selling individual who may eventually have aspirations to management. And then that's another challenge. So how do you find this individual? What kind of sprints on your sales side are you running that are scientific tests that help you to indicate this is an opportunity for scale. This is a repeatable process. This is actually a place where we want to pour gas on this thing and see if, see if we can catch fire. The next step, assuming you get past that piece, is now how do I get more individuals to do this like that? And this is a real challenge for founders because founders, obviously, you know, you've got the pretty baby syndrome where this is my thing that I've been working on and I've been talking about forever and there have been lots of product conversations. Not so many conversations around how this solves a problem but more conversations about how we are swifter, faster, stronger, lighter, whatever you know, competitive advantage the product itself might have. So then how do you take all of that and some of your customer experience and then leverage that into hiring, bringing on individuals inside of a sales process that's going to be effective, measurable, allow for you to track metrics, and again, continue to iterate on experiments until you get to that point of a series A where you're funded again. And now you really have to prove this hockey stick and uh, press on the gas. And, and, and that's where we really help organizations to scale. 
Very interesting. I mean, you've touched on a number of areas that I want to dig deeper on. For those of you who are not familiar, what does MVP stand for? Minimum viable product, not most valuable player. Sorry, I've been watching a lot of basketball. So minimum (laughs) viable product doesn't mean something that will just about do the job. It needs to be a good minimum viable product, doesn't it? That's right. It has to be something that gives an indication of what you're trying to get out of an MVP and a minimum viable product is somebody saying, wow, this is something that is solving a problem for me. And, you know, frankly, I don't want you to take it away. Not, hey, Marcus, that was really interesting. I know we've talked for a number of years and you're a really good friend. So I've tried this thing inside my organization. I'm giving you a little feedback. If it went away, I wouldn't really care. That's not what you're looking for. Well, I had a friend, Jerry Lemberg, who was one of the four original founders of Intel. He ended up going into KB, the venture capitalist. And he used to describe entrepreneurs as people who would create elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. Um, <laughs> and great. while there may be the odd pretty baby, there are often ugly babies. Um, there are lots of ugly babies. Which the owners insist on talking about. It's, you know, it's, um, <laughs> then they get people who call themselves salespeople who are basically braces in, in suits. That's right. So lots of photographs of this hideous ginger child. Um, <laughs> then expect people to swoon and fawn at their feet. So in terms of the whole piece around scaling up, putting in place systems, enabling sales, what are the common pitfalls that you see in this scale-up phase? So the common pitfalls are threefold. The first pitfall is exactly that, that folks fall in love with the product, they ignore customer feedback. And the challenge with sales is that you are trying to force feed people something either in messaging that doesn't resonate or that just is not resonating as a product, right? The second piece is not listening to the marketplace and identifying those signals that you want to double down on. When somebody says to you, hey, you know, the problem for me is not so much inefficiency. My bigger challenge is the fact that this is not, I'm just making this up, right? Is the fact that uh, I can't get user adoption on any of my other systems like this. So instead of focusing then on user adoption, people go full steam on this product efficiency and disregard that feedback and don't iterate quickly on these types of things. And the third thing is really just a focus of staff and training. I come from a training background, so I have a keen eye towards where there are opportunities to impact the sales process from the vantage point of helping folks to understand a methodology, understand a framework, and tie that to metrics. So when you are approaching sales from the scientific perspective of, hey, I've got this framework, which allows me to engage in this way because I'm dealing with a human being who has a limbic system and a respiratory system, right? And I'm tracking it using these one or two KPI or OKR, choose your acronym, key performance indicators or objective key results. And I'm looking for this outcome. And if I do not get this outcome, irrespective of my emotional connection to this product, I am going to move in another direction. If you divorce yourself from the emotion and truly look at the data and are operating under a scientific sales process, then you can be successful or you wrap it up quickly, either of which is considered a success, right? So shoot the dead horse and move on or uh, grow. This is pretty interesting. I saw a couple of bits of research in the last two weeks, which came from some fairly reputable organizations. I think one was Forrester, and they're saying that 12%, only 12% of personnel felt that their organization provided a good onboarding process. And the second statistic, which is even more damning, is that only 6%, that's 6% of managers in a sales management capacity are qualified for the job, which means 94% are not. So tell me, what kind of systems and processes and training needs to be in place for the management? Because it seems that if you haven't got that right, then chances are your sales is going to get shot to shit. Well, the first piece, and I know you know this as well as anybody, is promoting a manager to their level of ineptitude is the first danger. You're taking that person who is a great salesperson and has demonstrated some efficacy in that role and saying, hey, there are two problems here. One, you you don't have a path, a logical promotion path for a great salesperson to remain a great salesperson inside of your organization. So the promotion path becomes promoting that individual 
to management without any training, without any frameworks, without any support, really, and basically saying, okay, so help this team to do what you did, right? <laughs> and then if you go back to those five levels of learning that we talk about all the time as trainers, you've got the, the manager who's sitting at this point of maybe unconscious competence around what it is that they do. So they've got some mastery, but they are not at a level where they're able to still that mastery into frameworks or science, or even take that individual who's never seen sales before and coach them up to a level that's going to be effective. So the first is supporting that individual should you make the mistake of taking your best salesperson off the floor and putting them in a, in a coaching and management role. The second piece is if you are going to promote somebody or if you're hiring externally, providing that manager with some frameworks around which they are going to coach with some clear ideas as to the specific metrics that you're tracking and not having that person try to be everything to everyone, but instead focus on the one or two things that lift, that rise the tide of the entire organization, right? So if it's coaching around discovery, this is one place where we find um, an immediate impact that can happen within you know, 30 to 60 days is getting frontline managers to simply coach discovery and to train their team around what uncovering pain means versus doing a feature and benefit dance, right? If yeah. you get them doing that consistently, provide them a framework around which they can actually have these conversations, evaluate calls that is not a very weighty analog process, and then train the team, provide them some support from the vantage point of here's what pain looks like. Here's how we uncover pain inside of our organizations. Here's how we articulate pain. And here's how we don't sound like a marketing team going out and doing future benefit dance. Then that creates some lift. But the onus is on leadership. And whether that leadership is a group of founders or whether there's greater hierarchy inside of the organization, meaning directors and VPs, et cetera, the onus is on them to be able to spell out specifically what is going to create success for this manager and where that manager should focus instead of abdicating responsibility by just layering, right? Which is what we see a lot of times in, in growth organizations. Particularly what, what because do you mean by layering? Layering is just throwing in bodies because it doesn't make ah. sense for markets to have 25 reports. So, hey, we'll get them a manager, right? It doesn't matter who that warm body is. As long as they can fog, fog a mirror, you know, they're there. And so yeah. now Marcus doesn't have 25 reports, he's got nine, right? <laughs> and he's become even more divorced from the problem and even more inept. That's exactly right. That's exactly Yay. right. Sounds like a victory. <laughs> <laughs> For the recruiters. A Pyrrhic victory, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> For the recruiters, absolutely. Well, that's the other piece. You know, you've got this, this I, I love recruiters, so I hesitate to use this term, but there are a lot of parasitic elements involved <laughs> in startup growth. And I won't call identify recruiters at large as being parasitic. But what I mean by this is, I think you've seen these charts that end up on LinkedIn about once a quarter, about 150,000 sales enablement tools, right? That's one. You've yeah. got recruiters who are saying, oh, we'll go get pedigree, 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 because this person worked at Yelp, or this person worked at Salesforce, or this person worked at LinkedIn. And that does not necessarily correlate to success in a different organization. Well, there are assessments that bear this out, right? So all of these elements are saying, hey, you've got this, this host, <laughs> to stick with the parasite thing, right? You've got this big fat host that's thrown off task that's going to die unless it finds a way to get to you know, this next stage, which is the next amount of money that they're going to be able to raise. And so we're going to sell them the dream. The analogy that you've catalyzed in my mind is of a host with a bunch of ticks. And they're just waiting for the host to walk underneath the tree and then they'll drop down and then they'll bloat on the money that's being thrown at an idea. And this again raises another question because Jerry was a very interesting chap. He was a pilot in the Vietnam War, got oh, shot, wow. and he used to tell this fabulous story about how he was rescued after having been shot down. There was a Viet Cong boat rushing towards him and then the Marines rushing towards him, and he was stuck in the middle, and he'd, they just managed to get him. Otherwise, he'd have been a POW. But one of the things that struck me about the way he used to describe venture capital is that what they tend to do is they throw money at opportunities, and what they f are banking on is getting one great big white whale, um, maybe right. even a unicorn, and then a couple of elephants, and then the rest are left to die on the vine. Now, this is something that really strikes me as a huge missed opportunity. And there's a huge opportunity for a VC or a private equity firm 
to turn the tables because obviously they work most of them work on the 220 model so 2% fees and 20% carry when they exit now i was talking to uh, one vc fund a couple of years back and they had 42 companies in their stable and they'd blown millions and millions of pounds on these organizations and they'd given them first round funding second round funding third round funding oh my and because they hit their r&d targets but they consistently missed their commercial targets mm. in the hope that they would land that whale and what's really interesting is of the 38 that they left to die on the vine in the end the whole fund died because they didn't manage to get their carry in the end either is that there were probably 12 to 15 out of the, those companies that were perfectly viable ideas if only they were managed appropriately they had the right plan they had the right structure they had the right team and they had the right selling and recruiting methodology and they coached their people they didn't invest in that they were so fixated on the wrong end of the problem which was just coming up with the product because i think the way a lot of these organizations work and correct me if i'm wrong is they just have to get enough traction to get the next round of funding so that then they right. cash out and that doesn't create viable businesses what that creates is a balloon or a bubble that's a, that's exactly right and you know what's interesting about what you're saying is is we distill this down to the term sales execution right there is a a chasm for lack of a better term between that growth of product and sales execution because there is such a focus on product i'll give you an example we actually had a conversation a week and a half ago with an organization that is around series C looking towards their D they've had a significant amount of churn among their senior sales leadership and one of the founders said you know if we could just press pause on sales and not divert our <laughs> literally if we could just press pause on sales and not divert our energy and just kind of really you know he did not say bury our heads in the sand but pretty much it was like i just don't want to look in that direction It's a necessary evil that I do not want to deal with, but our product is so awesome. And it's always this, it's always if they just if we could just get our sales guys to demo the product, right? Oh. Everybody would be throwing cash our way. And we know that it doesn't work that way, but there is this mystification and and I don't know if through years of bravado and you know even the romanticization of the sales profession, right? There's this gunslinger that comes in and super charming. It's almost like the James Bond of the business world, right? and i think that that has given the impression that sales is just this art form and that some people've got it some people don't and you try to go spend a whole lot of money on someone who has proven they've gotten it and then you just leave them to their own devices and hope that they get it here again <laughs> right but the execution piece is where the gap lies and to your point vcs you know they always said years ago you know you don't get fired for buying ibm well vcs don't get fired for investing in the companies that have proved to be innovative in a space that looks like something somebody else has done right there's an overlay and i don't mean to disparage vcs i understand what it's like when you're dealing with money and you've got to make an argument you don't want to say well i'm going to take a flyer on this crazy idea over here right you can't take too many flyers you want things to fit into the model and not everything that fits into the model is going to work the other problem i just have to add one thing i'm sorry just on this note i was writing a notice as you were talking about this 12% 6% The other problem is that since these founders are getting funded, they get an illusion of their product's efficacy. They're not viewing it from the vantage point of these investors are at Vegas, right? And just because I put, you know, I don't even know if 23 is a black number in roulette, I don't gamble, but let's just say just because I bet 23 black doesn't mean that I'm saying that 23 black is a winner. <laughs> It's me saying I'm going to hedge my bets and you seem to fit the model of somewhere where I can hedge, right? again this strikes me as some situational blindness and living in an echo chamber because people tend to believe their own rhetoric after a uh, yes. very short while and i think we were talking about ray dalio's book principles before we got on the recording and he echoes so many of the principles that we teach in sandra and i'm pretty sure you're teaching as well which is that you know one of the key principles is you have to attack yourself I think you have to look in the mirror and see that your reflection is ugly and even though you're once pretty age has withered you and 
you've got wrinkles and you've got carbuncles and your skin is dry and you have to attack yourself. I think this is where I see a lot of owners of scale-ups be blinded by their own sense of self-importance. They fall in love with their idea and they can't take the criticism. And I think one of the most important things that anyone in a scale-up can do is surround themselves with people who are believable, who are able to challenge them and will hold up the ugly mirror and slap them around with it sometimes, rather than saying, you know, my idea is brilliant. What the hell do you know? These people have been willing to invest money in me. That's proof enough. I don't think it is. I think you need to be a really aggressive in terms of how you attack yourself, not only in terms of your beliefs and your product development, but also in terms of your systems, the people that you have. Just because they got you to where you are doesn't mean they're going to be right to take you to where you want to be. And we've recently launched a program called Organizational Excellence, which was, is designed specifically to help people to take their business to the next level and then the next and the next and the next. And I'm bringing it into the channel. Now, I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but I am really curious in terms of how one builds in sales enablement into a sales channel where you don't have direct control, where you build in systems and processes and you work in collaboration with your partners to create a sales culture that serves both you and your partners, and the customer. Well, that's really key. I think that there are organizations that approach channel too soon, and then there are organizations that don't get there fast enough. And I'll tell you the difference that I've seen. An an example of approaching the channel too soon would be an organization that is abdicating its sales responsibility, meaning it has not even found its messaging the pain that it solves for its direct consumer, its direct product consumer. Obviously, we're talking B2B, but you understand what I mean by yeah. that. It's customer, let's say. And is instead saying, again, you know, let's, let's stick the hand in our stand as it relates to sales, abdicate that to a bunch of channels. We're already talking to these people and we'll show them how awesome our product is. And then, wow, they're going to be so excited to run out and sell it. Then what they realize, of course, is that they don't have the tools to provide to whatever that intermediate ent- entity is, whether that's a service provider, whether that's a channel partner, or whether that's a, the, you know, even a franchise type situation, they don't have enough to enable that person to be successful. Meaning you can't abdicate the responsibility to the channel partner to go out and identify what are the pain points that are, that are essential to be discussing. What is the competitive differentiation? What are the battle cards? How does this play out in the field? How should, what should the sales process even look like? How do you initiate a conversation and then move that either through qualification or disqualification? What is your ideal customer profile? What are the personas? All of these types of things, right? You need to be able to articulate to a partner. Otherwise, what you're doing, and I think you and I have had this conversation before, is you've got somebody running around doing quote-unquote biz dev, mm-hmm. right? And that basically means I take Marcus to lunch once a month because I happen to be in London and you know I'm flying out there to meet with people, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've signed a bunch of contracts that don't really have any kind of catalyst towards revenue or execution, but they've said that, hey, we kind of like each other. You know what I mean? And then you're wondering why there's no revenue coming from your channel four months later. The other piece, and so that's on the front end of people who do this a little too soon. The other piece are folks who wait too late in that they are trying to carve out a larger piece of the revenue pie for themselves and don't realize the force multiplier that occurs when you're able to catalyze a channel to sell on your behalf and actually are solving a pain for that channel partner. So if you're not treating that channel partner as a customer, where you're actually identifying the ideal channel partner for the, you know, that's a different ICP, right? Your ideal channel partner, both from the vantage point of who you're talking to inside of that organization, the challenge that that channel partner has in the marketplace, how you are able to solve that challenge, and then marching them even through a sales process and a process beyond the execution of the contract, but an actual process of engagement, then you're not going to be successful. And instead, you're going to end up chasing around and and spending a lot of energy in cycles with a partnership that is going to end in failure. And and by failure, I just mean, you know, not the revenue numbers that it could be or market share or, you know, user adoption, whatever it might be for your organization. So finding that sweet spot, and I think you have to build it in early. I think that under advisement, 
in sales execution, you would say that when we get to this point of customer traction, and when we have proven this model successfully inside of our own organization, this is the point at which we will go talk to these five, these 10 strategic partners. And they're strategic for a reason that we have identified that seems to make some sense. And then you go out and you vet these conversations to see whether or not this is the case. But um, there's a lot of gray area in there. Obviously, I've, I've painted in broad strokes, but a lot of folks don't approach this unless they've come from a background of an organization that had channel partners with the level of significance and priority that it should be. It often ends up becoming uh, a person in the corner, right? <laughs> Who does something. I think you've hit it the nail right on the head there because I think if you're going to build a channel, you need to treat the partners as if they are your own. And right. if you haven't given some thought into who your ideal customer is, the kind of pains that they have, the problems that they're facing, why they should care. If you haven't been able to successfully run your proposition against the litmus test of the three best questions in sales, which are why, so what, who cares, and Mm. come up with good answers to each of those questions, and then articulate that in terms of how you're going to approach people, how you're going to identify people with those pains, at what job titles that you're going to create a point of entry, then being able to identify with the partner and co-develop a route to market or go-to-market plan, then I think you're pretty much doomed. As we see so many channel partnerships fail, and the majority go dark within 90 days of recruiting. That's right. Now, you <clears> just <throat> spent, I think the last time I spoke to somebody in detail about what it was costing them, it cost them around $14,000 to recruit a new partner. Is that right? Yeah. Now, and it dies on the vine in 90 days. In 90 days. And I've had conversations with people who say 92% of their partners are not producing. Now, that's a whole load of marketing spend that's just yes. been wasted that could easily have been spent training their partners to sell more effectively to get the vendor's marketing working with the partner's marketing and salespeople in order to come up with effective go-to-market strategies and pursuit plans. It just strikes me as complete madness. Well, I think people fall in love with the contract. They fall in love with... It's like month one of dating when you're dancing on these conversations of where we're going to travel and what we're going to do and you know, how beautiful our babies will be and yeah. you know, the, life, the life we're going to build together. And then you know, 90 days in, you've had a rough day at work and the life has shown up and you know, some of your ugly behaviors that you didn't fix when you were 25 are popping out. The things that you discussed in fantasy land are, take some work to make happen in reality, right? Because you're two individuals. And in this case, you're two individual organizations. And I think that what is missing often, you know, we've got, hopefully, most firms by now have some semblance of a sales process, right? And this is typically what you're seeing oh, inside. Oh, I wish you were right. I, I know. I was, as I said it, I was like, why would you even say it? But <laughs> we have the technology that would allow for it to happen. How about that? I'm, I'm going to say okay. most organizations have a CRM, right? <laughs> Into which when they first received it, they dropped some stages. <laughs> and, and, and I remember years ago, 88% of Siebel customers, so it tells you just how long ago that was, <laughs> said that Siebel implementations had been a total failure. 88%, only 12% said it was done well. And that was largely because it was done top down, there was no buy-in. Right. And then when it was implemented, it acted as a tool for audit rather than to help people sell. So you see these kind of acts of self-sabotage and idiocy perpetrated throughout the history of sales and each marketplace. You mentioned sales methodologies. I get that it's important. And you know, obviously coming from Sandler, I understand that. But playbooks, I know this is something that you and Corey are really big on. Yes. Tell me a little bit about playbooks. So the challenge with playbooks historically, because the playbooks is, is a big buzzword out there you know, that, that people are talking about and more than ever today. The challenge that we've seen with playbooks historically is that if an organization even has a playbook, the playbook is usually, I I don't know if you remember the 80s and 90s when people would create those big business plans. They'd put together this big 40-page business plan, executive summary, and a SWOT analysis. I remember putting them in the back of my car for months. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Either that or it would become a monitor stand after you showed it to the board or whoever had to see it, right? Yeah. So that is what has that is what most organizations have in the way of a sales playbook is something that is either a PDF, which is basically a digital monitor stand, or something that resides on Google Drive. And I don't know what your Google Drive looks like, Marcus, but you know, we're a small organization and I can't find anything there, right? So, <laughs> so that's where the playbook is. And it was an event. It was, you know, first quarter, we're releasing the playbook and you go to your, your SKO and they talk about all these great things that are in it. And here's the content that's typically inside of it. You get stuff that is relevant to a person in their first 60 days. Here's our founder's story. Here's our product roadmap. Here's some things that we've done in the past. Here are some logos that we started off with that are fantastic that you should talk about. Maybe here's a long-form case study, things like that. But it's information that has relevance early on in a salesperson's tenure inside of an organization and then is never used again. It's never even looked at again. So what we're trying to do is to get folks to realize that there's been this confluence of technology and information and the types of conversations that salespeople are having where the requirement and the opportunity is to create a sales book that is a resource and not a piece of reference material. And what I mean by that is a playbook that actually has in it the means by which we navigate conversations from uncovering resources to competitive battle cards to how do we talk about our product in microphrases? And by microphrases, I don't mean the stuff that comes from marketing, which is beautiful and it's great and it greases the skids and it can plant a virus for somebody to uncover whether or not they've got a problem inside their organization. Maybe it's a great leave behind. But a salesperson is not going to regurgitate a 20-page case study. A salesperson can't just sit and list uh, statistics from a white paper in a conversation. Instead, they need to be uncovering pain and they need to leverage these things into micro content that works in actual sales conversations. And then how do you present this in such a way where a salesperson isn't digging for it, trying to find you know, the document you know, and the right revision date in Google Drive, but actually presented in software? So where we've found an opportunity, and this is relative to seed organizations as they're coming out of the gate, we'd love when we get the chance to talk to technical co-founders or folks who are early on in their startup growth so that we can help them to begin to utilize the framework of a sales playbook to test their hypotheses and to come back and to really, again, emotionally detach from outcomes and instead look at the data. So if you are creating an experiment, the experiment is around, hey, I'm going to target this persona in this marketplace with this message because we believe we have a winning zone here versus our competition where we battle here and, and we lose somewhere else, right? Being able to track that then and then tie that back into your CRM. So playbooks for us are actionable intel for a salesperson to be able to use in their selling conversations, whether those are in-person meetings or by the phone. When tying this all together with the managers being able to manage, my view is CEOs have a one-word job description, which is grow. And managers have a three phrases, actually, which is hire the best people, get the best out of them, and protect them from the idiocy of the leadership. They love it. And that pretty much summarizes the job of manager. Now, hiring the best people. Is there a playbook for hiring? There's a framework we use for hiring. If you've read any of our books, you know that Corey and I have never met an acronym that we didn't like. Um, <laughs> the, the acronym is HIRE. We have not published this yet. We do it with our clients. But the acronym stands for hunt, interview, rubric, and then execute. So the idea here, it's not genius. You know, A lot of it comes from the Smart Brothers who wrote uh, Top Grading and Who, but really creating experiential interviews, understanding first and foremost, what is it you're recruiting for? Like, what, who, are you, who are you trying to bring on board? If you just go out looking for a good salesperson or if you, again, you know, leave this responsibility to a recruiter, they're going to find the person who is entirely defensible, right? But here's the challenge with that, particularly out here in Silicon Valley. The challenge with trying to find the person who has a pedigree that comes from one of the top organizations you know, that has sold SaaS before and, and did well there is that there aren't that many of them. And those that do exist are a... Movable. A hot, yeah, right. So that's the other piece. Are they ready to move? The other thing is, if they move, you're going to pay them a ton of money. What we want to be able to do is to leverage, and this, is, this goes back to your question around methodology. If you have a sales methodology, and if you have a means of testing and have rolled out a process inside of your organization, and those are the iterant steps that take you from an initial conversation, either to disqualification or qualifying and purchase, right? That's what I'm considering a sales process. So you've got a methodology, something like Sandler or 
they're married others and the process. And you are training on those and you've got some organizational competence around how to integrate those into your sales motion. Then you can go out and you can find the person who went to Main Street College, right? And fold them into a system that allows you to onboard them effectively and provides ongoing training and support, gives them a manager that understands how to coach against the system, gives them some accountability as it relates to metrics inside of a CRM. That's how you scale an organization. Because everybody can't go hire the $250,000 three-year AE who had success at XYZ Unicorn, right? Yeah. So the playbook, just to dovetail with this, the playbook ties into that by creating the opportunity to not be like the LMS, right? You've got a learning management system that's great. And sometimes, well, they may not be great. They're often just filled with 40-minute long detached recordings that somebody has done over an SKO. And they tell people to just go go look at the learning management system. You'll find everything you need there. Um, And that's fine if if your product lifecycle was frozen in time and, and you're not continuing to develop, right? But the sales playbook creates an ecosystem by which these things are fed up from the bottom and from the top. That means I'm an SDR and I, I'm a sales development rep and I have a conversation with somebody on the phone in a specific vertical. And gosh, you know, they said something about a pain that we have not even discussed. There should be a means by which I can distribute that information beyond tribal knowledge or beyond just retaining it for myself, which will leave with me when I leave the organization, right? There should also be a means by which somebody who is a VP who has made a strategic decision around a pivot based upon the product roadmap or based upon a new product release is able to disseminate that information in sales speak to the people who are having conversations today in such a way that is frictionless and doesn't require pulling people offline for a five-hour session with the product team around where this thing relates and then filling a salesperson with all these feature benefit things around product market differentiation. I remember I was working with a, an engineering company. They were an $8 billion engineering company specializing mm-hmm. in the oil and gas market. And they flew this lovely guy called Tom over from Texas. And for 90 (laughs) minutes, he'd showed slide after slide after slide of a picture of a flow meter or some oil or gas head. And then he talked in terms of Newtons and all this kind of stuff. And fascinating. (laughs) Not one salesperson put up their hand and said, Tom, that's all fine and dandy, but how do I use this to sell this shit? Right. And again, one of the things that fascinates me about sales culture today is that salespeople are not curious. They're passive and they expect to be fed. And my view on sales, it's not popular. I think that 98% of people who call themselves salespeople are not salespeople. They are at best, at best, order takers. And if they're really terrible, then they go under the category of negotiator, which essentially means give stuff away in the hope that you can buy business. Because they just don't really think. They're not very cerebral. And I think salespeople should be intelligent and lazy. My model on this is Carl von Clausewitz, who wrote the book On War. And he always used to recruit Prussian officers for those characteristics. Lazy and intelligent, minimum effort, minimum loss of life. (laughs) That's right. Um, And I think salespeople have to be hired for the same qualities. If you don't hire salespeople for those qualities, then the best thing that you can hope for is a brochure in a suit. And given the way technology is moving, I reckon anywhere north of 20% of salespeople will disappear or their jobs will disappear over the next five to 10 years. I can't surviving. There are a lot of folks who share your opinion. And I'll tell you this, First, I love the smart and lazy. I think Bill Gates talks about that as well. <laughs> that that's, that's the person who will come up with a smart, smart solution, right? I think that one of the issues, if you just examine, if you just take a second and you start to Google sales tools, sales tools talk about machine learning this and data already scrubbed and no work for you to do and here's how you automate and Here's how you listen to calls. And here's how we throw out the words that you should be using. And to the point of laziness and your idea around a lack of curiosity, the organizations who are going heavy on tool implementation are basically saying that this is the culture we want to create. 
We don't want you to be curious. We're going to use something for data, which is going to scrub the data, figure out our ideal customer profiles. There are even there are even tools. I had someone demo one of these to me. There are tools that help you to generate the conversation. Meaning, I've looked and I see Marcus, and I see Marcus is in England, and I see he's a Sandler trainer, and I see that this is his background, and I see that he likes these things. Here are five conversation starters, and it tells it, it paints out the email for you or the or the email for you. So. I think that we may be creating the culture. I don't want to disparage or, or, or suggest that the individual. You know, you really want to. Yeah, I do, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> okay, you just leave that to me. <laughs> I'll leave it to you. It's your podcast. You do it. <laughs> um, no, I feel as though we are. There's a term for this that's not coming to mind, but we are rising to the expectation that's been set, right? Or maybe we are not rising to anything beyond the expectation. Uh, there was outside my daughter's gymnastics class, there was a lovely maxim which said, uh, you don't rise to the uh, level of your talent, you fall to the level of your training and practice. There you go. I love that. I'm going to write that down. That, that is what I'm trying to say. That, that was said very eloquently. So I think that if that, I mean, imagine this, you're onboarded into an organization which spends a good, let's say your onboarding is way too long, which is three weeks, right? The first week is all product, right? Nobody's saying, hey, get on the phones today. Go fail today. Go have some conversations and have customers tell you you're, or prospects tell you you're an idiot so that you can get over yourself and realize that rejection is going to be part of the game. Instead, they're like, let's spend a week in telling you all the great things about our product, right? Now that's in your head. The next week is, here are all the tools that you've got at your disposal. These tools pretty much automate your function. All you got to do is just click this button and the phone will ring and these things will show up for you to say, it's basically dumbing you down. Instead, if you create an onboarding process that allows for some space for an individual to get in and leverage the way in which they got there in the first place. So this is something we talk about in coaching all the time. When I'm coaching a client, I like to find out, hey, Marcus, did you do anything competitive in your past? Whether it was athletic, whether it was academic, how did you play an instrument? How did you learn your instrument? How did you master something? Okay, now I, as a coach, am going to adapt my coaching style to what you have already well-worn as synapses in your mind by the time you're 25 years old as to how you learn and how you succeed and how you embrace failure, how you accept criticism and how you iterate and grow. So this is what good coaches do. So now if I'm doing that, it allows you the space within which to be curious because you can do something outside of what's been programmed for you. It's great to give tools. It's great to equip your sales team. I'm not suggesting... Well, I would love to suggest you strip them all out and see what they do for a month. But um, it's great to provide these things. But you also have to create the individual. You have to allow them to find themselves inside of your organization. And that creates the curiosity. What I'm still struggling with is how many times an organization's leadership have to beat their head against the same bit of brick wall, wonder why their skull is cracked and their skin is bleeding before they decide that enough is enough of doing the same thing stupidly, repeatedly, and maybe it's time to take a step back. Why is it people stay stuck in that bubble? Is it some kind of heuristic? I don't know that it's heuristic. I'll tell you this. You said something earlier about learning to attack yourself. One of the first conversations that I'll have if a CEO brings us in to have a discussion around working with closed loop, and they will say, the sales team's not doing this, and we do some investigation and some discovery around you know, metrics and conversions and you know, all the typical things that anybody in our space might do. The question we ask that stumps them, that gets them thinking and gets them understanding whether or not they actually want to work with us, is we say, so what role have you played in this? <laughs> Right? And when they start thinking about it, and then sometimes, and this is when we identify, you know, for us, it's a litmus test is whether or not somebody has intellectual humility and says, yeah, 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 this is on me. You know, I was out raising money and I thought I could just raise money until the cows came home and just stay out of this thing. And now now the cows or the chickens have come home. I don't know. I'm too many farm references here. But everything is is now urgent, right? (laughs) But getting them to admit that, hey... I've, I've pulled the trigger on some things I shouldn't have. I've made some bad hires or I have not been diligent in methodology or I've rolled things out and never followed up and held people accountable or I just don't even know how to solve this problem. That's where it starts. So I think that the beating of the head against the wall goes back to your point of, you know, before you press head to wall, first look face to mirror and see what you see, <laughs> right? <laughs> Generally, I think that frightens people. I mean, you say you put it much more politely with what role have you played in this? 
minus um, if I told you that you were the problem, what would you say? Uh, right. It's a slightly less nurturing version of the same question. Um, <laughs> but it is a great litmus test whether or not they're even coachable or trainable, whether they're involved. Because again, one of the other things that I see, and I'm sure it's your experience as well, is, oh, I, I don't need it. Uh, it's my guys that need it. And that sends out an awful message, which is them versus us. And in my experience, early on in my training career, I let that happen. Now mm-hmm. I won't take them on if they're not involved because I know what's going to happen. Which they is, undo okay, it all. Well, not only will they undo it all, but I will train their people who will then run rings around them, think they're an yes. idiot, and leave to go to a competitor. That's um, true too. Absolutely. And that, you, know, I, you can't take someone's money in good conscience knowing that. If they insist and you've told them that and whatever, then it's a judgment call. But I would rather not be responsible for that failure. And you know, I'd rather walk away from it. And I've been offered good money from organizations that said that they wanted me to help, but they wouldn't get involved in the training themselves. And I've walked away from it. Um, I agree with that completely. Disaster. Yeah, it, it's an absolute disaster. It's, it's a terrible culture. Often I found that the individual that says that truly does not have mastery. They're just terrified of being exposed. Yeah. And if they, they can't be in the room and face that exposure and learn and grow along with their team, they're not in the trenches. And to your point, the team will recognize that and they'll move on. Well, this then raises yet another really important point, which is the entire experience of the customer. I interviewed Amy Woodall, who works with Tim Roberts as his uh, senior vice president over in Indiana. And what was really interesting is um, she specializes in the customer service side of things and customer experience. And she said it so wonderfully eloquently, which is the customer is not always right. But when they're wrong, it's normally our fault. Um, Mm. Either we haven't set their expectations correctly, we haven't established the ground rules, we haven't created the framework for doing business well together. And what really struck me, and it's been festering away at the back of my mind for some time, but obviously a bit coming from sales, I'm stuck in my own bubble. And so it's all about new business and growing the account. But the account retention piece is so key. Nowadays, you're seeing statistics being bandied around that it costs between six and 25 times more to win a new piece of business than it does to keep an existing one. If you don't see the customer experience at a strategic high level and you don't see marketing business development, lead generation, sales, channel sales, customer onboarding, customer service, customer satisfaction, and the whole customer experience as one continuum, then frankly, you're an ass. It's just crazy. How come more organizations are not being challenged by their investors to say, well, hang on a second, this land grab is all well and good, but if you're, if you're let, getting people in through the front door, but you've got a great big gaping hole through your back wall, that doesn't stack up. Why don't the investors push them and make them deal with that right at the outset? You beat me to a story I was just going to share with you, which was an organization that came to us a couple of years ago. Series C had raised a ton of money. They came to us expressly because their investors said, we will not put another dime into your organization until you solve your churn problem. And they were terrified because that was not something they had addressed. But to their credit, I guess, if anyone's to be credited in this situation, it had not been, it, it had not been a metric that was focused on before. And then suddenly they wake up one day and realize 80% of my revenue is tied up in my existing customers and they're not renewing. So With even the beyond model. the acquisition, right? Yes. I mean, this would oh. be something that's front and foremost, right? So this again, though, is why we love that early stage organization where we can build in those controls and create a cross-pollinate, both for upsell, cross-sell and retention, right? The revenue function is a function of the organization. You cannot divorce success and customer care from the revenue piece. I can't remember whether it was Bill Bartlett who said that you build your business today as if you mean to sell it tomorrow. I'll give him the credit. Uh, Love that. 
And the problem I see is that people don't learn from history. They're so focused on making it through the current set of fires that they're not thinking strategically. And so Hamish Knox always talks about the chief fire officer and head arsonist being the same person. Yeah, putting a fire out with, uh, <laughs> in one hand and then lighting it uh, with another, uh, and then wearing wearing the superhero vest as they put uh, it absolutely. out. Absolutely, right? yeah. their underpants have to be on the outside, and they've got to be made of asbestos. Um, <laughs> and um, the, the challenge here is that how do you get that message across to the investors, but also to the founders right at the outset when they're just about to hit the curve of the hockey stick? In fact, twelve to eighteen months before, at least before they hit that inflection point. Because if they don't do that and they haven't planned for it, then that's where they just leap into the chasm head first and the wheels come off and they're winners of the Darwin Awards. I'm reminded of that Darwin Award winner who decided to put a, a ballistic missile on top of his pickup truck uh, to <laughs> jump a canyon. Um, and he jumped the canyon. Awesome. Unfortunately, he went straight through the canyon wall the other side. Where did he get a ballistic missile? This is awesome. The I Russians have to go were selling to them off. The <laughs> Russians were selling them off after Glasnost. eBay. You can get anything yeah. on eBay. Pretty much everything on eBay. And if not, the dark <laughs> way. Um, That's great. So, there is, and I apologize for not knowing the name of the book, but uh, whoever's listening, if they're interested, there's a book by Nick Meta, who is the CEO at Gainsight. <laughs> How uh, do you spell Meta? M-E-H-T-A, I believe. And it begins with an individual at Salesforce who was sitting in front of, you know, they were, they were celebrating, you know, a, a historic quarter and just doing fantastic. And he comes into the boardroom with the executives and basically presents the fact that they will be doomed in five years if they don't solve the churn problem. And this began, you know, the whole customer success journey for Salesforce, which does this fairly well. So I will say this though if we had to run companies, not towards an IPO or towards a liquidity event, acquisition, whatever it might be. But instead, we're running companies towards profit. And we had a fiduciary responsibility to that exclusively. I think the customer success equation would come early and often into the discussion. What a fantastic observation. Worth the entire conversation just for that nugget. The book that you are referencing is called Customer Success... How Innovative Companies Are Reducing Churn and Growing Recurring Revenue by yes. Nick Matter. That's uh, it. Excellent. Okay. So, Hillman, tell me, what are you reading that you'd recommend people to read? I'm reading a book. You know, I tend to read strange things, so that's my disclaimer. Like that. I'm, all right. I'm reading a book called The Back of the Napkin by Dan Rome, R-O-A-M. The subtitle is Solving Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures. So the idea here is, you know, as trainers and consultants, we learn that people have different learning modalities. And, you know, going back to Sandler, you've got folks who are audio, auditory, visual, and, and kinesthetic. And so you want to try to appeal to these things. I think that managers, coaches, executives, trainers, anybody who deals with human beings on a regular basis should understand how to leverage language in all of its constructs to be able to communicate your point most effectively. So I'm reading this because what I have always wanted to do, often I'm standing at a whiteboard and I've got this idea that I want to be able to present and I end up defaulting to writing things out. And if I drew more pictures, I think I could be more effective. So uh, I'm learning how to draw pictures. I'm going back to grammar school. Excellent. Okay, well, I've just downloaded the Kindle version of that, so thank you for Awesome. That. And I've also downloaded the Enigmata book on audio. I'd love to hear your feedback. I will. Do. I'll definitely come back to you on those. Uh, they're queued up with about 18 others that I've booked. <laughs> I've but I get through a book every three or four days now, so... Um, Fantastic. Thank goodness for Audible. That's right. Okay, so tell me, Looking back to your 25-year-old self, what acts of self-sabotage and stupidity would you recommend them not pursue? And how would you advise them to avoid them? I probably would not have dyed my hair so many times because I might still have it now. <laughs> I uh, never dyed my hair and I still haven't got any. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I, I would say, uh, you know, 25 years old, I got, oh man, I, I was fortunate enough 
to be in an executive position inside of an organization. I was a VP of sales and marketing around people who were significantly more senior than me. And I had this habit. Well, well yeah, I won't even go into the habit. Basically, we, they did a 360 and then sent me off to an executive training, an executive management retreat. I was very fortunate in that respect. And then they presented the 360. So I hear all these great things from my team. And it's an anonymous 360, right? But these are never really anonymous. You know exactly who said what. And I got this feedback from the management team that was that um, Hillman would do well to embrace failure instead of hiding his inefficiencies and vulnerabilities because the harder he tries to hide them, the more evident they become. (laughs) And I, oh, Marcus, I was devastating. It was like as though like someone, what is the word Buffett's term that, you know, when the tide goes out or comes in, whatever it does, you can see who's swimming naked. Well, I felt completely naked in that moment, but (laughs) it made me realize that authenticity was both the key to management, the key to personal growth and self-satisfaction and the key to effectiveness. And so I've embraced the term and I still do this today to fail forward fast and, and publicly. Like just, hey, I blew it. This is me. It's Hillman. I blew it. I blew it again. But you know what? I'll be back on track in about three days. You know? I couldn't agree more. I mean, in all honesty, I don't think I've ever learned anything substantially important from my successes. They've yes. always come from a damn good drubbing and a load of scar tissue. And the other thing that I've learned is that by admitting those human frailties, you're actually significantly more plausible. And certainly in a training and a management and a leadership role, that humanity makes you more attractive. And in fact, I was interviewing my video coach today because I've been getting help to perform better in front of the camera. Awesome. One of the things that she taught me was to actually be far more vulnerable on camera. Instead of being more forthright as I have been historically, the content is always really well received by people who receive it. Uh, the problem is, I think I scare the living daylights out of a lot of people, and that doesn't do mm. anybody any good because it doesn't uh, you know, meet my objective of creating uh, awareness, familiarity, and engagement, and then a pipeline of inbound inquiries. But equally, it doesn't do my audience any good. I think I do them a massive disservice by creating this suit of armor. And in a management function, those admissions of human frailty, I think, make you more approachable so people will be honest with you. And again, referencing Ray Dalio, one of the things they have is a failure log. And punished for hiding failures. You never get punished for admitting them um, because you can learn from them. I agree with that completely. that That is an awesome culture. The other piece is it's just easier. You find yourself trying to control less, trying to manufacture less. You get out of bed, you put your feet on the ground, you're excited to go pursue whatever the day has, as opposed to dreading the possibility that you'll be exposed, right? (laughs) Well, actually, you've hit the nail right on the head there. I cannot remember a day in the last 14 years when I first learned that through the TA and through Sandler. I have come to work where I've done less than 95% of what I love to do which means every day is a joy. I mean, Monday morning cannot come around fast enough. And if you, certainly from my experience, if you love the work that you do that much, you do it well, you get great feedback. When you do it, time flies by. Because you're getting great feedback, it's really fascinating work. It's important, it's meaningful. And when it's over, you can't wait to do it again. That is projected out. Because one thing no one could ever accuse me of is not being fully engaged and passionate about the work that I do, largely because of that lesson that you just mentioned, which is learn to fail, embrace it, see it for the lesson that it brings you rather than a personality defect. That's exactly it. So Hellman, how do people get hold of you? People can get a hold of me at can get a hold of me at closeloop.com. That's C-L-O-Z-E-L-O-O-P.com. My books are on Audible. And uh, my phone number is on LinkedIn. So find me, catch me. Excellent. And one final question. Most exciting film that you've watched in the last couple of years? Oh, no. You hit me at my weakness. Most exciting film? Best novel. Oh, the two weaknesses. (laughs) You know what? I'll tell you this. I finally finished 100 Years of Solitude. 
I have begun and put down that book uh, yeah. over almost a hundred years. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to make a recommendation, and it is a, please um, a black or white. There is no in between. You either love it or loathe it. Okay, um, it's Perfume by Patrick Susskind. They did a quite a good job of the film, but the opening chapter. The third from final and the final chapters are the best bit of prose I have ever read. Um, really? Yeah, the audio version of it on Audible is fantastic. So Perfume by Patrick Susskind, can't recommend it highly enough. It's the only novel I must have read 10 or 12 times now. Um, I will it download changed, it today. Well, it completely changed my perspective on my senses when I was about 21. And uh, every now and again, when I need a little boost... I read it because I really associate myself very closely with the principal character. When you read it, right? Yeah, absolutely. When when you read it, uh, I think you'll understand why. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> it's on my list. It's but, in the so, first first in the queue. For those of you who have read it, don't think too badly of me. Um, <laughs> so that's Marcus Kauke signing off. Hillman, thank you so much. Really looking forward to chatting again and doing this all over again. My pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye now.